podcast. I'm your host, Mehdi Farooq, Senior Tokenomics Analyst at Nemo Kabrath. On the other side of the mic, we have a special guest today, Richard Chen, who is a general partner at One Confirmation and a top Dune visit. Uh, welcome, welcome, Richard. Thanks for having me on. So, so Richard, uh, first question I want to explore with you is with, is with regards to your crypto origin story. To how did you get into crypto? Yeah, this is around 2015. Um, when I was uh, studying, doing research in cryptography, game theory, mechanism design um, in Dan Bonet's lab. And that's how I first learned about like what Bitcoin, Ethereum, cryptocurrencies were, because that was kind of the natural use case of cryptography. And so I got into it more from the technical side, uh, got super deep into the rabbit hole, co-founded the Stanford Blockchain Club um, and really just went full time in crypto from there. And what was the motivation to become a, a, a crypto investor at one confirmation? We'll also love to explore with you what's your thesis there and how do you kind of evaluate investment and investment strategy there, there as well? Yeah, I mean, as a difference between investor and operator, as an investor, you take like kind of a 30,000 foot overview of the entire space. Um, and uh, you, you got to like understand, you know, DeFi, AMM bonding curves like super well, just as well as you understand uh, like generative art. Uh, so I, I like learning about a lot of different topics versus being a founder where um, you just got to be hyper-focused and like the world's expert on like something very specific. Uh, so which is why I wanted to go into investing. And at one confirmation, how do you guys evaluate investment? What's the investment thesis, investment strategy like? Uh, yeah, so uh, maybe some backstory. So we really started as like one of the first uh, crypto venture funds, kind of all the funds that preceded us uh, were hedge funds that were more interested in like trading crypto, uh, like having big like liquid portfolios, like doing rebalancing. But we want to take like a long term VC approach of like backing founders and startups, uh, working with them for like five, 10 years uh, and just being like the first money in and first partner in. Um, so in terms of thesis, um, kind of... Uh, like one overarching thing for the team is like authenticity is like, does this team really care about the crypto ethos that like decentralization matters or are they here because like they're greedy and like want to make money and like filtering out like authentic founders has like avoided us a lot of grief with like folks like Sam Bankman Freed and those who like, yes, do really well in a bull market. Uh, but like the vibes are off. There's like always something that's like not quite right there uh, when they're focused on the money rather than the crypto ethos, the ideals of decentralization and bringing power back from like institutions to the hands of the people. Uh, so like that's kind of our first filter for founders. And then in terms of product, um, I mean, we're a generalist fund. Like we don't focus on just NFTs or only DeFi or things like that. Um, it's really like new products that are pushing the space forward. Uh, so, you know, back in 2019, a lot of that was like new DeFi protocols, like those were the building blocks um, of DeFi, like uh, lending, borrowing, DEXs, insurance, those were being built. Uh, and then you had like this big NFT wave where like there's a lot of new verticalized marketplaces and like that became super interesting. So we're real, we really just want to stay on the bleeding edge of like what are new interesting products uh, for the crypto space. Um, so yeah, I say those two just like team and product market. Yeah, whilst I was doing uh, background research, I, I learned you guys were also seed investor, like very early investor in OpenSea. Uh, 
so I also want to explore that with you. Like, how did you spot that even during that time NFT wasn't like wasn't as popular? So what was the what was the different about that team, and like what was the what was the thesis there, and how, and how was the team different? Yeah, so we we invested in this. We led the seed round of OpenSea. This is April 2018. Um, so OpenSea just come out of YC. I knew one of the co-founders, Alex Atala from college. Um, and this was around the time that CryptoKitties uh, was popular. And um, there, there were two projects at the time, like building a like, secondary marketplace for NFTs, which were OpenSea and Rarebits. Uh, so, you know, the Rarebits team was like a lot more polished. Um, you know, they were ex-Zynga uh, Farmville uh, f- founders, um, they raised a lot more money from VCs. They had a good resume. Uh, but what I liked about the OpenSea founders, Devin and Alex, is they were just a lot more scrappy and nimble. Is like they lived in discords, uh, were like very quick to like reach out to new NFT projects, um, and just understood like the crypto community, the NFT community way better, and basically like out executed uh, rare bits. Um, so around the time we invested, they were doing about like four times more volume than Rarebits. Uh, eventually, Rarebits uh, shut down like around early 2020 um, and OpenSea grew to the business where it is today. From a forward-looking perspective, uh, I read your Substack a few few days ago with regards to some of the product trends you, you, you're seeing yeah, uh, going forward in 2023. Um, yeah. So just taking a slightly longer time frame, maybe like starting from short run to maybe long run, what are some of the themes and verticals you you're bullish on, or you think uh, would do 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 well? Yeah, so my Substack, uh, I I do this like every year. I've done it since 2019, where I I give like three predictions for the upcoming year, and also like recap how I did on my predictions for the previous year. So for 2023, my three were um, ENS, um, MEV as a new business model for apps and wallets, and the third is uh, generative art. So I, I can go over those pretty briefly. Um, ENS. Um, it's quite surprising that like everyone in like NFTs, like talks about like PFPs, art, music, but like no one really talks about ENS and it's like kind of the big elephant in the room because it has like, there are about like 600,000, uh, unique addresses that hold ENS and like the second place is like a hundred thousand. So it's like by far the most widely distributed NFT project. Um, and it's also the 10th most called smart contract on Ethereum, which is pretty crazy. It's like. Contracts that are called more are like Uniswap, OpenSea, Tether, USDC, like kind of these big OG smart contracts. And then it's like ENS. Um, So it's like the adoption is like crazy, but like no one really talks about it. And if you look at the KPIs, they're also like growing very well. So that's one I'm really bullish on. Uh, MEV as a new business model. Um, Just like a lot of money is like kind of... Well, not being left on the table, but it's going to like arbitrage bots and like sophisticated traders um, at the expense of LPs and like users. And if only there are a way for DApps to like capture the like ARB profits um, is like, and like one way to do it is like if you're on your app specific chain or rollup, uh, you can like charge a fee uh, for bots to do arbitrage. And then the fee you charge becomes either revenue for the DApp or it goes back to like the LPs of the protocol. Um, that's like also like one good solution to like offsetting impermanent loss. I, I think uh, that will become a more like common business model over like the next few years 
uh, is like how do how do protocols uh, make money uh, without like charging fees to users? Like one way is just to like charge the fee instead to the art bots who are like really taking all this money like very pretty risk free. Um, and then the third prediction I had was about generative art, and uh, this is in the more in the context of like PFPs because uh, you know um, like a lot of PFP projects collections like prices are down and like they want to add utility for holders uh, and like the way they're doing it is like by like creating like physical merchandise uh, building like a metaverse game uh, stuff like that which in my opinion is like the wrong approach to take because unless like your company is really good at product and execution um, to date most PFP projects have been good at marketing and brand which are like two very different skill sets and I think the right approach to take is like becoming art in a store of value. Um, and you know, generative art is a good example of that. Uh, you can say like CryptoPunks, while it, it is a PFP, I'd say it's more PFP than generative art. You can argue that um, kind of the approach, the direction they're taking is like becoming more of like a grail brand, like exclusive generative art uh, that's like intertwined with Ethereum's culture and history. And I think that's like the right approach to take for PFP projects rather than um, having like kind of physical real world dependencies uh, to like the projects collections. So th those were my three predictions for the upcoming year. And how as a fund or maybe perhaps individually, how are you playing those, those three themes in, in terms of at the fund level or individual level? Yeah. I mean, we made investment in ENS vision for like the first category, um, like kind of largely based on that thesis. Um, MEV stuff, there's a lot of, um, Interesting projects. Uh, we invested in Blocks throughout back in 2018. That's kind of our only exposure to uh, MEV. Um, and then generative art. Uh, we also have an NFT fund, which like buys JPEGs. Um, so we have like our main fund, which is investing in like equity tokens, like companies, and then the separate NFT fund that buys JPEGs. And that fund owns, you know, CryptoPunks, Nouns, uh, some like art blocks, generative art, things like that. Interesting. Um, I also wanted to like pick your brains with regards to some of the themes that I'm also finding interesting recently. One is the NFT financialization that we are seeing. Another mm -hmm. one is Web3 social and the whole reputation and identity layer uh, be being built up. So what are your views on that? Are there any things that, that you really like as, as either as a user or perhaps as an investor? Uh, we'd love to learn more from, from, from you with regards to this. Yeah, so I'm a big angel investor in NFT5, which is like the market leader in NFT financialization. And um, they have like a really, really compelling Dune graph because like while NFT marketplace volumes are down like 95% from all time high, um, like NFT5's volumes are only down like 50%. And like uh, my thesis on this is um, like NFT financialization is more anti-fragile than marketplaces. Uh, because, you know, in a bull market, people want to borrow against their NFTs for leverage. And in a bear market, uh, people want to borrow against their NFTs as like kind of a put option. Is like if the floor price crashes below their borrow amount, then at least they you know, walk away with the amount they borrowed and default on their loan, which is essentially what a put option does. Um, so, so, which is why it's like more anti-fragile. It has like use cases in both bull and bear markets. Um, that's why I really find compelling about NFT Phi, and also um, as DeFi yields have come down and like become a lot more competitive, um, a lot of DeFi lenders have moved to like NFT lending. Uh, so like 
if you look at their June graphs, um, like monthly uh, active lenders on NFT Fi like continues to reach all time highs like each month, uh, even though like we're in a bear market, and that's a really interesting metric to watch. Um, and what was your uh, second other trend? Uh, Web three social and and reputation layer and identity layer with verifiable credentials or or soul bound tokens. So what what's your yeah. thought on that? <clears throat> Are you playing it through any instrument? Yeah. So on Web three social, um, so we invested in a forecaster. Kind of my take on Web three social is uh, like token gated communities is going to be a really um, killer use case of Web three social, and there have been a lot of projects that are like kind of only focused on like NFTs, like social. But I, I think it's better to take a broader approach, like the more generalist approach, like Farcaster, where you start with the social network first uh, and then add like token gated and like Web3 features down the road. It's like kind of what Twitter could do. Um, but unless Elon Musk like leans into like Web3 and like adds all these features, um, like th- th- that's um, kind of the low hanging fruit that Farcaster is going after. And then the kind of like reputation identity, uh, we talked about identity with ENS, <clears throat> uh, reputation. Um, there's interesting projects uh, like Sysmo and others uh, that you can do like zero knowledge proofs and like attest that you meet some criteria, say like you own uh, like this NFT collection in your other wallet without having to like dox all of your different addresses. Um, and I, I think that's a really cool feature is like being able to attest certain things without having to like dox your wallets. Uh, and like, there's like protocols uh, working on uh, like these like reputation mechanisms. Uh, you did mention uh, you guys also run an NFT fund. So wanted to explore more on other use cases of NFT apart from PFP, like some of the verticals that, that you perhaps you guys invest in from a platform standpoint, or maybe perhaps from an individual collection standpoint that you feel are killer use cases for NFTs and kind of underappreciated by the market, apart from the identity uh, ENS. Yeah, so for, for the NFT fund, um, we own uh, CryptoPunks. Um, it's a kind of, I, I'm much more bullish on CryptoPunks than Bored Apes because uh, CryptoPunks is authentic and they really have the benefit of being first and like, it sounds like kind of stupid, but like, that's like kind of how it works in art, in the traditional art world. It's like, if you're first to a new movement, uh, you get a lot of um, like credentials and respect as that way. And like, it's, it's Lindy. Um, we own nouns as like an authentic uh, CC zero project. I remember when uh, loot mania happened, like in late, late 2021. Uh, and like people were, were going to say like loot was uh, going to be like the next, a uh, big like building block for like CC zero and all that, but uh, that was also like where like authenticity matters. Is uh, loot was like a lot of uh, urine vibes. Uh, a lot of like short term traders were interested in like pumping and dumping uh, versus nouns, which is like a more thoughtful long term community. So that's where we decided to get into nouns instead of loot, and that's really paid off. Uh, we own some. OG, like super rare, one of one art. Um, I, I talked about generative art earlier, but I think another flight to safety in a bear market is to like one of one art, uh, especially on like super rare and like the stuff like X copy minted in 2018. And this also goes back to like 
being first in Lindy effect. It's like you can't reverse time on the blockchain. When, when something was minted in 2018, <clears throat> it's always going to have the status of like being one of the first OG NFT artworks ever created on Ethereum. And that's why those pieces uh, are still worth a lot uh, today. Um, and obviously, like always looking at new projects, uh, maybe there's like interesting stuff in gaming, other collections. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's the stuff on the NFT fund. And then for the main venture fund, uh, it would just be like kind of investing in like marketplaces, stuff like OpenSea, SuperRare, um, ENS Vision, Catalog, Sloika, MetaHood. It's trying to like pick the leading uh, verticalized marketplace in each space. Uh, because if you think like the total market cap of like NFT is going to grow significantly over the next five, 10 years, I think like each vertical is going to be a multi-billion dollar business. It's like right now, like OpenSea is the only multi-billion dollar business in NFTs. I think like art or like music will be like big enough by itself to support a multi-billion dollar business, which is why we're really like leaning into that thesis. Yeah, I, I want to dissect this further. So in terms of a mental framework to identify blue chip individual NFTs, uh, you did mention Lindy effect and community. So Apart from those two factors, are there any other factors that, that, that you use as a heuristic when identifying the next blue chip or identifying the, the uh, good performer in incoming years in terms of a blue chip NFT or NFT that has a potential to become a blue chip? Um, for like projects that are like artworks, um, kind of really understanding the artist and uh, whether or not they like really lean into the Web3 ethos and like we're seeing this actually right now is like, there's a lot of artists who did like really uh, big expensive drops back in like early 2021 that have like pretty much like rugged their community. It was like, it was a way for them to like make a couple million. Uh, and then they just like kind of went back to their old um, art business and like didn't really care about web three. And like those NFTs are obviously down a lot. Um, so is yeah, understand like caring if the, if the artist has like a good story background and understands Web3 and like wants to do something more meaningful with it. I think those are like the key ingredients uh, for new up and coming artists that are minting stuff. And talk about platform, you, you, you guys are heavily invest in different verticals of NFT marketplaces. So what's the criteria there? You, you mentioned MetaHood, uh, you mentioned Catalog, like one is for music, one is for real estate. Uh, so what's the criteria there? Like how, like how do you guys know that, okay, these will be the bets that we, we can take and they can become one of the top marketplace as, as a, either as a monopoly or a duopoly uh, in, the, in their specific verticals. Is there a, a mental model there that, that you guys use for, for NFT marketplaces? Uh, it's ultimately uh, like talking to the team and like this kind of goes back to um, back, you know, in 2018 when we were like looking at OpenSea versus Rarebits uh, is like, you know, also like being, being first is like also kind of underrated is um, and also, uh, like, does the team really, are they really passionate and do they care about, uh, web three? And you can see, you saw this with OpenSea when, uh, they were really like digging into all these discord communities, um, versus those who kind of come from like the web two world and see like NFT marketplaces as like a super obvious idea and like want to, um, like jump into the pool, uh, and like those, Founders uh, typically like wash out when like things get really tough in the bear market. Um, so yeah, it's like kind of talking to the team, understanding their motivations, authenticity, 
Uh, do they really understand like Web3 community? And do they have like a unique perspective on like their specific markets? So are all the NFT verticals you mentioned, maybe real estate, music, one-on-one uh, -on -one art, which one NFT vertical you feel like is very under the radar, very underrated by the market that you feel in next couple of years uh, will do really, really well and you're very excited about? Um, I mean, music NFTs, like volumes are growing like slowly month over month in the spare market. Um, it, it's taken longer than I expected for music NFTs to really have like kind of a crypto art moment where like volumes explode. <clears throat> um, I think like my main concern of, about music NFTs is like the collector distribution. And like I have, I have a Dune dashboard on this, uh, but it's like, like about like 20% of like music NFTs are owned by like three individuals. Um, and when you have distributions like this, like, it concerns me that uh, it's like a forced narrative by like a couple influencers versus like an organic community. And that was like certainly diff different with a lot of other like projects in the early days. Um, so if like music NFTs can get like broader buy-in, uh, which like Sound XYZ is like doing a good job with having additions, uh, I think that will create a more organic community rather than like a forced narrative. Uh, you did mention using on-chain data to, to kind of have a macro overlook of, of market. Uh, how are some of the other ways investors can leverage on-chain data? And what are some of your favorite metrics like across the board that, that you basically track when you're doing these on-chain analysis? Yeah, I mean, aside like from like the obvious metrics, like KPIs would be like monthly volume, like stuff like number of like mints. Um, I say like underrated metrics, uh, like collector distribution is one is like just like from seeing the pie chart you can really get a gauge on the health of the community if like a handful of whales own like a disproportionate amount of tokens of, or nfts and like they basically decide and it becomes like a forced narrative uh versus like a more grassroots organic community i think that's a really interesting metric to track um I just, uh, also like for NFT marketplaces, uh, it's really important to track uh, like, we'll filter out like wash trading. Um, and like, it's really stunning how like marketplaces like Looksware, where like 98% of the volume is wash trading. Um, it's like same with like X2Y2, it's like, I think in the 70 something percent. Um, and like, you no know, metrics can be pretty deceiving at first if you don't do like the wash trading filter because there are a lot of um, like traders that are like creating a lot of volume for like airdrop farming and like things like that. Um, so like if you, you got to like go deeper into Dune uh, as an investor to kind of filter out like what are the organic usage and like what's uh, usage just for the sake of like airdrop farming. Um, was there a time where you guys use on-chain data to identify either a private investment or a public investment? And if, if there was, like, like how did you guys go about it? Yeah, uh, this was, uh, Super Rare is, like, one that came to mind. We invested in Super Rare in, like, mid-2020. And this was, like, around the time, like, DeFi Summer was taking off. Uh, so, like, it was around the time where, like, uh, I clearly remember, it's, like, kind of laughable now, but, like, the DeFi DGENs were, like, kind of too cool for school for NFTs. It's, like, they kind of poo-pooed it. It's, like, this is, like, some illiquid, non-fungible shitcoin with, like, a picture on it when we could be trading all these like liquid tokens and like make a lot of money there. 
Uh, but if you look at the Super Rare Dune dashboard uh, that I, I created at the time, uh, it was like monthly volume was like growing like 50% month over month. And, you know, the Y-axis was still really small. Like they were only doing like a couple hundred K in monthly volume. Uh, but as a VC investor, is like you don't really care about the absolute number on the y-axis. You care more about the growth rate. And obviously, when you project out 50% month-over-month growth, like pretty quickly, it gets to like something crazy. And like that's what happened uh, during the NFT craze in early 2021 when you know Beeple did his big drop, and like suddenly like crypto art uh, popped up on like mainstream media's radar. Uh, so that was like an investment we made at the right time that we spotted an early trend. Uh, with data and then made the investment um, before like things exploded. Yeah, a few days ago, I I, I looked at your um, conf- like from Dune Analytics conference. Uh, I, I was going through that, and there were a couple of hot takes that 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 you presented with like evidence based yeah. on chain data. One was with regards to NFT marketplaces uh, being better than aggregators. In fact, marketplaces still being better than aggregators. And another one was. NFT financial products better performing, doing better than, let's say, uh, other stuff. Can you just touch upon those two hot takes and maybe kind of uh, tell our audience how does that on-chain data allow you to kind of present that thesis? Yeah, so um, NFT financialization over marketplaces. Uh, I I talked about it earlier, a little bit earlier in this podcast, but uh, it's like NFT lending and borrowing is more anti-fragile uh, through like bull and bear markets. Therefore, like the volumes are more consistent than like marketplaces that like do really well in bull markets, but then like volumes are down like 90% in a bear market. They basically track like NFT prices. And then like on aggregators versus uh, like kind of going directly to the marketplace, that was like kind of a more controversial take. Um, but the, the data is just like surprising how, um, like a vast majority of volume is still going directly through the underlying exchanges rather than aggregators. Uh, and like DEXs is a one example is like, there are like 30 different DEXs now that you could trade with like meaningful liquidity. Uh, yet still like, I think 75% of on-chain volume is going directly through DEXs like Uniswap versus two aggregators like one inch and matcha um, for and NFT aggregators, uh, I think the breakdown is uh, about like 90-10. Uh, and then bridge aggregators, it's like even more. Uh, it's like in like the 90s to like single digits, um, like 90% to like hop and like directly through these bridges versus aggregators. So uh, people like to, in- like VCs like to invest in aggregators because uh, you kind of index the space and don't really have to like do the hard work of trying to pick winners. But I think the value capture is still largely in the underlying protocols. So it is worth trying to do your research, trying to pick the market winner, because in the off chance that you're right, like you win really big, like how Uniswap and OpenSea were like the two best investments in uh, crypto in like the last four or five years. Uh, Talking about counterintuitive examples, what have been some of the counterintuitive lessons you have learned being in crypto and being being a Web3 investor? Yeah, there, there's a lot. Um, one that comes to mind is kind of the Web2, like Silicon Valley VC, like investor mental model. A lot of those like lessons like don't apply in Web3. And uh, I, I guess yeah, one example is 
in web three, like pedigree and resume, like almost like matters, like nothing. Uh, it's like web two, like if, if you went to Stanford, you worked at Google or Facebook, like you, and you decide to start a startup, like you'll get funded like immediately. Uh, and, and like, the, I think the reason is because in web two, like companies are a lot more uh, managerial and like operational intensive. Like if you're building a company like DoorDash, uh, there's a lot of like ops people you have to hire and you have to be good at like managing people, uh, just kind of running the entire business versus like web three. It's a lot more of like a, like open source hacker culture where the skill sets are like being good at building product and understanding your community and like the company that you build and hire like engineers, it might be like 10, 20 people max. So you're not really going to need the big skill set of like being how, how to be a good manager. And that's how, like, if you look historically, like who are the most successful founders in like web three in like the last like several years is like almost all of them did not have like the traditional Silicon Valley resume is like, there are people uh, like, you know, living in, I know, Finland or Estonia or, I don't know, Australia, like places where like they got really interested in a community and like they built a good product that people wanted. And, I know, they didn't, you know, work at Google or Facebook beforehand. Um, and you, you also saw this lesson play out with like the Solana ecosystem. It's like a lot of VCs uh, mistakenly, in my opinion, like, looked at like all this talent going to Solana is like, look, like we have all these great devs like building on Solana. But I think there was a lot of good pedigree that went to Solana. And like now that um, like Alameda and like a lot of the stuff like washed out, uh, that disillusioned a lot of those founders uh, to go back to their web two jobs, uh, especially like now AI is hot and they have a lot of optionality and like those jobs are pretty high paying as well. Um, that's like one counterintuitive take that I've learned from VC investing. Have you been uh, thinking about convergence between AI and crypto in different different forms? Uh, I've seen a few projects out there. Is, is that one of the theses that you guys are exploring or any project that you have come across that, that excites you? Yeah, it's like combining the two biggest buzzwords, AI and crypto. Uh, we have made one investment, which is a deep NFT value, which is like using AI machine learning to appraise NFT collections. Like they have it with CryptoPunks and Bored Apes. Um, there's a lot of these like NFT appraisal uh, projects. Uh, I've like played around with all of them. Deep NFT value has like by far the most accurate uh, like predictions model. Um, I, I think the bigger upside for that is like becoming like on-chain Oracle uh, for NFTs. It's like right now, Chainlink and like other Oracles are just focused on like cryptocurrency prices, but like NFT pricing Oracle is like a really, it's a t really hard problem to solve. And uh, it's, there's a lot of upside for like the project that can get it right. Yeah, you, you have given me different themes, different verticals to look at. Now, one question I like, I, I want to ask you is perhaps one investment you regret not making and, and potentially the reason, like, like why, why do you regret that investment? Yeah, that would be Dune. <laughs> it's, it's like really ironic because I'm like Dune's number one user. Uh, but yeah, I, I passed on Dune three times. Um, and I, yeah, I just thought that it, it's a SaaS business model at the end of the day. And I just thought like the total addressable market of like how many people would pay to use a crypto SaaS product. I just like thought that market was like pretty small. Um, and 
yeah, turn, turns out uh, they've done well. So it's for like kind of these like market sizing and like business model questions, like they're always tricky to get right uh, because it's really, it's really hard to like kind of predict how big the market will be in like several years. And like the conventional wisdom is like, if you're a SaaS business model, you can only be successful if you're selling to like fortune 500 companies because they can pay like multi-million dollar yearly contracts. Uh, but there's been, there's a lot of counter examples where that's not the case where you can have a very verticalized SaaS model and that's uh, a really big business. Yeah. I also want to explore some tokenomics question with you. Um, one, one question is regarding token incentive. Uh, does it make sense? Like you, you have seen different NFT marketplaces. You have seen different DeFi, uh, DeFi projects. Like what's your take on token incentives? Um, this is something which is very different in Web3 and which is encouraged. You have incentives in terms of yield farming. You also have airdrops. Uh, do you think it makes sense to give out token incentive pre-product market fit? Or do you think it will be more potent when, when a project kind of achieves a product market fit and then there is a switch that just turns on and gives more 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 token incentive to kind of uh, hold on to that market? Uh, so what's your, what's your take on that? What's your take in take in general with regards to token yeah. incentives. On token incentive, I compare it to, it's it's growth hacking is like at the end of the day. And I compare it to like, you know, dot-com startups in like the late nineties where they raised like so much money from VCs and they're kind of throwing it all at like internet banner ads uh, before like the industry, marketing industry got really smart about how do you measure like CAC over CLV, user retention, like how, how much value you're getting out of uh, like your marketing spending. So like with token incentives, um, the problem with airdrops now is like airdrop farmers have gotten like super sophisticated where a disproportionate amount of airdrops are going to farmers. And I was, uh, so like Hop was really interesting where they were really the first project to like pay people to identify like civil airdrop farmers. Uh, and then you got like a, you got a cut of that if you attacked, uh, if you like, found these civil hacker attackers. And like, I was one of the top like civil airdrop hunters. I open sourced my GitHub repo for that. Uh, but it, a crazy stat is um, about one third of Hop's initial airdrop distribution would have gone to airdrop farmers. Uh, and I, I'm sure that number is higher for like other projects because farmers have gotten a lot more sophisticated about like not linking their wallets together, using centralized exchanges, uh, and like trying to make their usage look as authentic as possible. Uh, so I'm sure the average uh, percentage of like airdrops going to farmers is like much higher than one third now for other projects. Um, so that's on airdrops. And then for uh, like liquidity mining, I think it's a good like short-term growth hack is like, if you want to bootstrap uh, liquidity in AMM, uh, you can have like a liquidity mining program and that can like quickly get a lot of TVL. Uh, it's like a chicken egg problem. It's like without enough liquidity in the AMM, it's like just like impossible to do a trade, like swap without having massive slippage. So that's like a good use case for it. I don't recommend doing liquidity mining like forever or like cutting emissions over time because uh, there's a really good um, Dune blog post like where they go into like the empirical research behind this. But like user retention for liquidity mining is like pretty bad. Uh, and like, if you look at like who are the most engaged uh, wallets today for like an OG established project like Uniswap, 
is like a lot of those were like new wallets uh, that weren't like involved in liquidity mining like years ago. Uh, it could be like people have like recycled into like new wallets, but it could also be that um, like Uniswap's attracted new users and uh, the liquidity mining program they did back in 2020, like didn't create like sticky engagement. Um, so like overall, like liquidity mining is good for um, like bootstrapping liquidity AMM, but it's not like a sustainable long-term growth hack. Hypothetically, if you were a founder, would you, would you do an airdrop? Or let's say if you do a airdrop, how would you structure it? If you don't do an airdrop, like what will you, what would you do? Maybe go down the other, other route. So, yeah, I think the tricky thing about airdrop is like, uh, like to be sufficiently decentralized, you need to give your tokens like to a lot of addresses. And the fact is like a lot of these DeFi projects, like just, or just any project, like just don't have enough like users addresses. Uh, to do like a meaningful airdrop, otherwise, like those addresses are just going to be like massive whales in your in your protocol. So, like one solution is like you could, if you do a token launch, you could like allocate it to a community treasury, uh, which is like kind of punts the question of airdrops like down the road, uh, and like they can uh, put out a governance proposal down the road on like whether or not to retroactively um, reward early users if like the timing makes sense down the road. Um, th that's like my thoughts on doing airdrops. Uh, so, so what's your thought on proof of useful work or proof of physical work as some of the VC calls it, uh, where, where, you, where you have decentralized Uber, decentralized Airbnb, decentralized Deliveroo. Uh, have, you, have you thought about that? Do you think uh, we will be able to crack it with, with incentive structure and, and token structure? Uh, so yeah, so what's your take on that? I mean, like kind of these decentralized physical marketplaces, it's more of like been like a meme and like a buzzwordy thing. Um, because like at the end of the day, like Uber, Airbnb, DoorDash, they're, they're very like operational intensive businesses. And when the success of the company um, relies on operations, not technology, uh, that's like kind of like Web3 doesn't really solve like the crux of the problem. Um, so it, it, I, I, it's, I'm always like hesitant when I see like real world marketplaces uh, try to get like copied on chain. Makes sense. Uh, so we are heading into the last segment of the podcast where I'll ask a few rapid, rapid fire questions. Uh, so at the moment, uh, what's your biggest fear in, in crypto? Uh, well, top of mind is like regulation. It's like kind of that's looming question is like whether we'll see like a Dodd-Frank um, bill type bill uh but for crypto uh in the wake of like sbf and ftx uh and the unfortunate reality is like a lot of politicians like don't understand the difference between like centralized exchanges and DeFi. is like they kind of lump it all together as like this cryptocurrency thing um when like at the end of the day like like ftx's like failure is uh like they were a crypto exchange, but like the same thing could have happened if they were trading Beanie Babies or like any other asset. It's like if if you do corporate fraud, if you like cook the books, you commingle like users' assets. Like it has nothing to do with like the underlying asset they're trading. And I just hope that like politicians like don't like throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like there's like very few congressmen that understand this. Like Tom Enmer, um, 
who understand that like it's not an indictment of the technology it's like kind of a old school corporate fraud um so that, that's my biggest fear is like regulation could be really bad for crypto uh and that'll affect like u.s founders yep that's also one of my top fear uh it also hampers the token designs uh so the that's the thing I do. Uh, it, it limits the design space of how we can design tokens when it comes to securities regulation. Uh, so yeah, that is also something that keeps me awake. Uh, yeah. So so Richard, if you had one billion dollar, what would you do? Uh, assuming the billion dollars wasn't stolen customer money. <laughs> um, I mean, like SBF, yeah, I I would uh, like try to get into politics, influence politics. Um, it's just like kind of the unfortunate reality of the world is like if you don't have lobbyists uh, at the table in D.C., uh, you're just going to get bullied out by like other special interest industries, um, maybe industries like kind of the traditional finance, like big banks that may see crypto as a threat and like want to kill it. And like you got to have like money to fight. Um, so that's what I would be doing is like um, getting more into like policy. What are some of the side projects you're working on at the moment? Um, so CryptoArt.io has been a project I've worked on since, uh, I think, yeah, I started Thanksgiving 2020. Um, it's based, it's like an aggregator site that, like, if you're an artist, you can search up your profile and, like, it'll show up your artworks minted on, like, Nifty Gateway, Super Rare Foundation, all these marketplaces. And I, I like, like, the artist leaderboard. It's, like, kind of like a coin market cap, uh, coin gecko, like, top cryptocurrencies, but like that's for a top artist. And you can see the total market cap of uh, crypto or NFTs um, like summed up across all the artists. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. You're running a fund, uh, doing this, also have like being a top doing visit. So, so now one question I'm thinking of is what's your, what's your routine like? Maybe I can, I can, there's some pointers and lessons there for, for myself. <laughs> uh, well, lately it's been a lot of tennis. Uh, I'm like training for a tournament. Um, but uh, yeah, it sounds like a lot of stuff to, to do um, with like investing in like doing a lot of the data work plus like managing all these side projects, like stuff that I've built. Um, I say uh, the tricky part is just like maintenance. Uh, it's like I have this joke where like the golden law of Dune is like the moment you publish a dashboard, it's already outdated. Uh, and like, I'm very fortunate that like, uh, for example, the OpenSea, data team like they've been like Karina and Kanjin they've been really helpful at uh like whenever OpenSea like publishes a new smart contract they'll like tell me hey can you copy post paste this like SQL query to like update your contracts um sorry update your um uh, your queries on Dune uh so like yeah maintenance uh takes time but I'm like help grateful for the people who've like helped me with that what's your biggest pet peeve in, in crypto uh, I actually tweeted this uh, a few days ago, um, but I'm just like surprised that a lot of people are like very quick to forgive wrongdoing. Um, and like for me, it's like if I find out like someone's done a lot of shady shit like in the past, like I just like will refuse to do business with them. And like that's saved me a lot of grief because like basically it's like the stuff I know, it's just like only the tip of the iceberg of like even like worse stuff that's like that I don't know about. And like a good example would be like, you know, SBF is like, I knew from the beginning that early FTX employees were like insider trading, like 
token listings and like front running their customers and like made a lot of like millions of dollars from that. And like, there's like kind of this like shady unethical practice has like made me avoid like the FTX Alameda ecosystem like completely. Uh, because like, if I know this stuff, like what other stuff do I not know? And turns out they were stealing customer funds. Uh, so I'm, yeah, it's a pet peeve of mine, just like surprised that people will kind of sweep this under the rug uh, because they want to, I guess they're greedy and they, they want to do business with SBF until like the fraud gets exposed and it comes crashing down. So Richard, before we conclude the podcast, what is one of the questions, not even one, like what are some of the questions I should have asked you, but I didn't? Uh, I think you covered all the bases. Yeah, these are all really good questions. Thanks, Richard. It was a great pleasure to have you. Uh, it was a good conversation. I learned a lot about different facets, uh, of different facets of crypto that you guys are investing in. Thank you very much for coming to the Open Metaverse podcast. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.